researcher David Radcliffe who runs Radical.org and um, is well known I think in the JFK research community. It's a pleasure to have you on Mr. Radcliffe. Hello. Len, it's always great to be with you. Thank you. Very good. Today is Fletcher Prouty's birthday the 24th of January and I wanted to do another show just about Fletcher. I don't, in Black Op Radio I you know mention Fletcher now and then but I don't it's not every day or anything, but in a few days, you know, like his birthday or the anniversary of when he passed away or, you know, something important in the news, I, I like to have him on. And I know that you knew him. You met him. You did really good work with him. You came up with a book, which is unparalleled, a staple, Understanding Special Operations. It's almost, if somebody says, I, I mean, the book might be too much for the novice. I mean, you could read maybe On the Trail of the Assassins by Jim Garrison. But then after that, if you have a handle on that, your book is the next. And there's, a, you know, many books like Mark Lane and things like that. But I think you need to know a little bit about the Department of Defense and where Fletcher worked and know that Bob McNamara and Alan Dulles and who they are. But once you know that, this Fletcher has gone into details that thanks to you and your research are unparalleled. I just can't get over how much I learned from your interviews that resulted in that book. Well, I, I thank you. I, I, it was g- immense gratitude on my side. I met Fletcher through John Judge in 1988 when he was working to establish the Maybrussel Research Center in Santa Cruz, and he had known Fletcher, I don't know how long, but many, many, many years. They were both out of D.C., and <clears throat> so I was able to go then interview him. Mainly, I recorded the interview because I knew reading a series of his articles about the atomic bomb, the CIA, and the assassination of President Kennedy from Freedom Magazine in the 80s, I was very interested to be able to speak with him because he had firsthand experience. He wasn't wasn't, uh, secondhand follow-up reading, research, whatever. So I recorded it primarily, went to visit him and stayed for three days recording in Alexandria, Virginia in his house, slept at a cousin's house in Reston, Virginia, because I just wanted to talk with him. I didn't, at that time, did not think anything about, I'll make a book out of this. But that was 
very formative, made text transcripts from the recordings, 11 half hours, traded them back and forth with Fletcher through email so that he could take the files and edit them, mostly to add in bits here and there that he hadn't said in the interview. And finally launched Radical.org in 95. Now, and by I'd just like to back up a bit. For This was from his book, The Secret Team, that you right. had read. And mm-hmm. you had made a bunch of notes about the book. And y- your interview was to meet him and ask him to explain or go into depth about some of the ideas he'd written about, correct? I don't know if you just yes. mentioned that, but... No, no, that's that's exactly right. Thank you very much. Right. So the secret the thing team is, was formative. I want to let people know what a monumental contribution to research that is. That not only did you read his book and try to understand it, and then it left you with questions, you decided to write him, to make a date, and go interview him, and... The questions and the answers are that that's the, the jewel of the whole thing. That you you know many of your questions were Fletcher. Can you elaborate? Can you give me some more details on what you wrote here? That's that's a fantastic job, and I don't really see other people doing that these days. I can't think of offhand. I mean, I'm not that well read, but other people have gone to the author and say, "You've got to do a part two to this. You have to have an addendum. Can you explain this topic? It's so in depth." that merely writing about it, it needs more explanation. Well, the secret team and its allies in control of the United States and the world was his paramount book. It was very, it's very dense. The writing is thick. The information is very dense. And as I read it, I again and again and again wanted was curious to know what did he really mean by this, that, or the other. And through John, I was able to establish this connection and go record asking him. I brought about 20 pages of excerpts from the book that I'd separated out and typed up and printed so I could basically go through these things and to give a sense of his life path in the military as a briefing officer, from the very beginning of the original preface of the book, The Secret Team, he wrote, from president to ambassador, cabinet officer to commanding general, and from senator to executive assistant, all these men have their sources of information and guidance. Most of this information and guidance is the result of carefully laid schemes and ploys of pressure groups. In this influential coterie, One of the most interesting and effective roles is that played by the the behind-the-scenes, faceless, nameless, ubiquitous briefing officer. He is the man who sees the president, the secretary, the commanding general almost daily, who carries with him the most skillfully detailed information. He is trained by years of experience in the precise way to present that information to assure its effectiveness. He comes away day after day knowing more and more about the man he has been briefing and about what it is that the truly influential pressure groups at the center of authority are really trying to tell these key decision makers. In Washington, where these decisions shape and shake the world, the role of the regular briefing officer is critical and skipping down a paragraph, for nine consecutive long years during those crucial days from 1955 through December 31, 1963, I was one of those briefing officers. I had the unique assignment 
of being the focal point officer for contacts between the CIA and the Department of Defense on matters pertaining to the military support of the special operations of that agency. In that capacity, I worked with Alan Dulles, John Foster Dulles, several secretaries of defense and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as many others in key governmental places. My work took me to more than 60 countries and to CIA offices and covert activities all over the world, from such hot spots as Saigon to such remote places as the South Pole. It's a fascinating book, uh, published in originally 71 to 73, I believe. The hardback got, um, yeah, this is 73 for the paperback. I think the original was 71. Anyways, I took all of these transcripts with his edits, and finally in 1999, self-published a book, had 750 copies printed paperback, Understanding Special Operations and Their Impact on the Vietnam War Era. 1989 interview with L. Fletcher Prouty, Colonel, USAF, retired. So I'm going to just read a few excerpts from the book. I, I, I wanted to provide some, people some sense of the experience, his experience and his understanding of his own work as it pertained to being in the Air Force and in the military uh, from World War II up until the time he retired at the very end of 1963. In his work, he was, from my introduction, he was uh, in the unique position of coordinating logistical support for all U.S. military branches in support of government clandestine activities. In the Air Force from 1955 to 1960, Office of the Secretary of Defense from 1960 to 62, and Office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from 1962 from 1963. And as I write in the follow-up paragraph to that, from this vantage point, Prouty states categorically, quote, there is no law, there is no structure for covert operations. Yet, uh, close quote, yet today, more than 50 years after this clandestine system of political authority originated, I published this in 1999, we live in a society governed by laws which fail to acknowledge the reality of unaccountable and unconscionable government activities paid for by taxes levied against the unwitting public. There is no informed debate about these global covert operations. There is no discussion about their moral ethical, or legal appropriateness. This ad hoc creation has not even been acknowledged by our elected officials who are sworn to represent our interests. So going on from that in the section chapter called Understanding the Secret Team Part 1, I had a subsection that I subheaded Secret Team Foundations, Creation of the CIA Focal Point System Throughout the Government. And I quote, I I read this segment from the secret team in preface to asking him a follow-up question. He wrote in the secret team about regarding CIA agents throughout the government, many of these people have reached positions of great responsibility. I believe that the most powerful and certainly the most useful agent the CIA has ever had operates in just such a capacity within another branch of the government. 
and he has been there for so long that few have any idea that he is a long-term career agent of the CIA. Through his most excellent and skillful services, more CIA operations have been enabled to take place than can be laid at the feet of any other more, quote, legitimate, unquote, agent. This was the plan and the wisdom of the Dulles idea from the beginning. On the basis of security, he would place people in all areas of the government, and then he would move them up and deeper into their cover jobs until they began to take a very active part in the role of their own organization. This is how the secret team was born. So the first question that I had for Fletcher, quote, on the basis of security, unquote, was regarding Alan Dulles, how Alan Dulles would place people in all other areas of the government, to which Fletcher responded, As Mr. Dulles told me later, quote, I do not want various people from my agency going into the Pentagon and dealing with different people there and therefore exposing the activities of the CIA to a large number of people, because obviously such a a thing would then proliferate, excuse me, such a ring would then proliferate to others. And if they wanted submarines, they would have to bring in some very some Navy people, and if they wanted helicopters, they would have to talk to some Army people, unquote. He's quoting Dulles there. Fletcher said, he said of Dulles, quote, I want a focal point. I want an officer that's cleared to do what we have to have done, an office that knows us very, very well, and then an office that has access to a system in the Pentagon But the system will not be aware of what initiated the request. They'll think it came from the Secretary of Defense. They won't realize it came from the Director of Central Intelligence. The Dulles philosophy was to control the focal point area. This then led to the creation of focal point offices everywhere. As I established this tab six organization, as we called it, in every major staff area within the Air Force, because that was my jurisdiction at the time, I would clear people, another focal point, you might say, a sub-focal point, a person I could go to who had been given ahead of time the authority to do whatever it was that he was authorized to do. We stress this was only for authorized business he would have to be sure he had orders, either from my office or directly up to the chief of staff, and that we knew what we were doing for CIA. This leads to another step of what you might call breeding. We had to work with various agencies of the government, not just the Defense Department. We had to have contact points in the State Department, in the FAA, in the Customs Service, in the Treasury, in the FBI, and all around through the government, up in the White House. Gradually, we wove a network of people who understood the symbols and the code names and the activities we were doing and how we handled money, which was the most important part. Then we began to assign people there who, those agencies thought, were from the Defense Department, but they were actually people that we put there from the CIA. This led to the creation of a system of powerful individuals, peoples whose jobs were quite dominant in some of these other agencies. 
especially after they'd been there for two or three years, because we put them in there by talking to the top man, the cabinet officer or the head of an agency, we would say, this man is being placed here so that he can facilitate covert activities and so that he can retain secrecy that's required and he will keep you informed at all times. Well, in overall U.S. bureaucracy, the top people tend to move from one job to another faster than anybody else, not the career people there who are there for a lifetime. So the man we had explained the focal point structure to perhaps a year and a half earlier would be transferred or leave the government. But our trained and fully cleared focal point man was still there. So after one or two cycles of this, that agency might not even know that employee was our man and not actually theirs because they would have no record of his special assignment of what his origins were. They would think he was just another one of their employees. As a result, he became extremely effective because if we wanted something done, I remember a very sensitive operation that I needed some information on, and I needed it from the FBI. I didn't go to the FBI. I went to this guy that we had planted, and he got it twice as fast and in a much better form that I would have gotten it from the FBI, even though I was at that time working for the office of the Secretary of Defense. We had no trouble working with the FBI. This process was just to facilitate it and conceal the CIA role. These people became very, very adept. By the same token, people that were bona fide employees of CIA, parenthesis, agents, close parenthesis, were assigned even into the office of the Secretary of Defense. We had certain people there who were CIA employees. Ed Lansdale worked for the CIA all his adult career. A person named Frank Hand worked there. But the people in the Pentagon thought they were ordinary military employees. They didn't realize they were CIA. To give you an example, Colonel Lansdale was a full colonel in the Air Force. That was his cover story. And he had been a full colonel for a few years. And the Air Force was promoting some men to general. The question came up, would Lansdale be eligible? I told Mr. Dulles personally, I said, you can make Lansdale a general if you just write a letter to General LeMay because you're going to pay the bills anyways and not the Air Force. A few days later, I got a call from General LeMay's office. He called me in and he had the list of men that the Air Force was promoting to general. And as I recall, it was 13 or 14 officers. General LeMay knew every one of them intimately except one. He said, Prouty, I understood you know who this guy Lansdale is. He said, I don't know who the hell he is. I'm not going to promote him to general. And I said, well, don't you have a file on him? He said, yes. He opened it up, and the top letter was from Alan Dulles. I said, He's a very important man for Alan Dulles, he said. Okay, I'll promote him. Just like that. That's a good way to get a promotion, you see. But that created a very important job within the structure of the office of the Secretary of Defense. 
skipping down a paragraph. It wasn't long, I'd say by the end of the 50s or early 60s, before we had spread through the government what I called a secret team, a group of people who really knew how to operate the CIA business through the boundless maze of the United States government. And I realized I've skipped something here that's very important. Going back to first part, Colonel Prouty's military experiences, he described how he'd been transferred back to the Department of the Air Force in the, mili- in the Pentagon in 19- July of 1955. And he said he'd been there for three or four weeks when he received a call, when I, I'm reading now from what he said, when I received a call to go to the office of the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General Thomas D. White. General White's career had been in intelligence. He'd had many other duties and was a well, very well-trained and experienced intelligence officer. He told me that the National Security Council had published a directive, number 5412, in 1954, and that directive defined covert operations and established how the United States government would perform and support covert operations. It required that the Department of Defense provide the material support, the personnel support, the bases, the equipment for clandestine operations, whether they were to be run by the CIA or by the Defense Department or both. Whatever the clandestine operation, we would provide the manpower and the logistic support. This would require special techniques and special procedures to keep it secret, to pay the bills, and all that sort of thing. Handle people who were killed, and so on. He said to me, we have no policy on this. This is new, and you are going to be the focal point officer, you'll be given an office and responsibilities in which you will drop this policy in conjunction with all of the air staff experts that are needed and in conjunction with the CIA. Skipping down, so he said, so I sat down and for at least six months worked to draw up the paper, a formal paper for, quote, military support of the clandestine operations of the United States government. So that that was a huge aspect of his beginning to work in the Defense Department, starting in July of 55, as the focal point officer for, for clandestine operations of the government for anything that had to do with the Air Force. And he wrote up that paper and it got approved and he ran that office for five years until he was transferred to the office of Secretary of Defense. So going on into understanding the secret team part two under the subhead, the significance of the sense of infallibility leaders of the agency felt imbued with. And this is pretty much a key part of his, of what he wanted to convey to me. To really understand the CIA, you have to remember that perhaps its best cover story is that it's an intelligence organization. 
it doesn't do much intelligence. Intelligence is gathered by other assets throughout the government also. The agency has quite a bit, but that isn't why they were created. Covert operations is their big money deal. You divide that up into the mechanical and electronic things like U-2s and SR-71s and the satellites and all that, photographs and that whole business. That's the technical side of the agency. Then you get into this other part of covert operations where you're dealing with people, spies and agents and the like. That's a business that is almost everywhere. These people are the only ones doing covert work. It's a small group of specialists. It's interesting to know that if you're involved in a covert operation in Greece and you meet the people that are doing that and then you happen to be involved later in a similar operation in Bolivia, you meet the same people. To them, the world is all just one big chessboard. When it comes to covert operations, you'll find the same specialists all over the world. It used to amaze me. Of course, I got to know them and their trade craft. If I were working with them on something up in Tehran, and we were running some program there along the border of the Soviet Union, and then later on we're running a program up to Tibet out of Thailand, I'd find they were the same specialists. And as he described to me at some point, he knew personally all of the CIA chiefs of station around the world. He had to, so that at some point when he'd need to speak to somebody in whatever country, he'd get on the phone and they would recognize each other's voice and know through that means that they were speaking directly with who they needed to speak with, him with the person he was talking to and vice versa. So he was very fundamentally connected to Alan Dulles's CIA. It was more of Alan Dulles's than anyone else's really since. Well, if I could add something there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When he first started, Alan Dulles sent him around the world to meet people in the chief of stations. So Thank he, you. he went all around and met these people. So like you say, you, you think you're talking to somebody in a small little office and then it's like a 20-story building and you know the building is something else, but in there is this office where these guys work. That's right. He And he was not CIA. He was Air Force. So there's this merging or blending of aspects of civilian, supposedly civilian, and military programs and departments that were very, very tightly connected. I was very interested in his sense of Alan Dulles because he knew Dulles and worked with him personally for, as he described, seven or eight years. And so he had a lot of contact with this guy. And I, at the beginning of the part three of Understanding the Secret Team, that chapter, Alan Dulles subhead, Alan Dulles forging a government of reaction, writing about Central Intelligence Agency and the secret team and the person of Alan Dulles. He writes at one point that Alan Dulles, quote, was a counterpuncher and a missionary. He was a meddler. He thought 
that he had the right and the duty to bring his pet schemes into the minds and homes of others, whether they were wanted or not. So I asked him about Dulles. Why do you think he felt he had the right to do all these things? And how do you think he justified this in his own mind? And he went on to describe Dulles's background um, young man graduated from Princeton, went to Paris with the Wilson Peace Conference, and on. And then he said, so, so for Alan Dulles, he described him, Proudy, as a missionary, a diplomat, a financier, and a lawyer. And as he spoke, from my experience with him, which for seven or eight years was rather considerable, you could feel the power in the man. This was the way he worked. He felt he had a perfect right to preach capitalism as he saw it, or anti-communism as he saw it, throughout the world. It was people like Alan Dulles who really created the North-South confrontation, which was actually East-West between communism, but North-South with regard to third world countries, where either they could, they should shape up with us, or else they were declared communist. There's no black in the middle, no area in the middle where they could ignore them. There's no neutral. In the old days, India tried very hard to be a neutral country. And this Dulles system just wouldn't permit them to be neutral. They had to be communist or they had to be capitalist, one way or the other. This is the nature of Dulles. When you worked with him, it was either communism or the West. And he's not the only person that preached that, but clearly that type of either or black and white, no middle ground, no room for neutrality was tremendously destructive and clearly as we can now see with the hindsight of all the years from then from the 50s to now but that Fletcher Prouty knew this guy personally worked with him closely to implement the military support for the clandestine operations of the United States government he had very very significant reach on what he was doing and and of all of this, this is probably the last part I really want to cover, I guess. In the end of Understanding the Secret Team section of the book, I have a subhead, The Secret Team Far Beyond the Capability of the CIA. And one of the last questions I asked, in terms of Kennedy, you write, quote, Kennedy knew that he had been badly burned by the Bay of Pigs incident and by June of 1961 with these National Security Action Memorandum 55, 56, 57, he and Bobby knew that he had been let down by the ST or secret team, close quote. And in parenthesis, you say, quote, I carefully switched to the ST label here because in all fairness to the CIA, it was more than the CIA that really created the unfortunate operation, close quote. And then I ask, can you give us a summation of how the ST is in your eyes larger than the CIA, and what other groups, if such can be named, it comprises. 
Priority responded, if you analyze the Bay of Pigs operation very carefully, you will see that its components were far beyond any capability of the agency, unless they had the very willing and active support of the rest of the government. And the rest of the government in a secret team mode, not in a regularly established air arm of the Air Force, nor a regularly established sea arm of the Navy with Navy logistics. For instance, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Navy logistics behind all that was enormous. People didn't realize it, but it took place. The same thing occurred with the Bay of Pigs. The Navy was there. They weren't called upon. They shouldn't have been called upon, but they were there. Even the State Department was somewhat involved in the political side of this. Who would follow Castro? Who would be the chosen people to follow Castro? And there are large financial expenditures in such an operation. These activities don't take place within the CIA alone, and it's important to see the CIA that way. The CIA is always merged with the rest of the government that's taking part in these actions. Because this was true over such a long period of time, there were people who were very familiar with and well-trained for these operations. Every time a covert activity came up, they were involved again. This is the secret team. They can carry out these activities. I've been for a number of years now. I started in early 2020 to begin to work on going back to the original online source of this book that I worked up in the latter half of the 1990s and then self-published in 1999, I sold all those copies and I am, I am close to finally getting back almost four years later to picking up that thread left lying on the floor to put together the original source with perhaps some additions and make print-on-demand and ebook editions, publish them, so that once more people can, if they want, either get a book that they can hold in their hand or get an ebook. Um, the last four years have been the most extraordinary shift that has occurred, certainly in my lifetime, in a different way. As significant, certainly, as the assassinations of the 1960s, starting with President Kennedy, that really changed history. At this point, I see what's been going on since basically the lockdowns were initiated in March of 2020 as a final bid by oligarchs to have their final win to make a world that they want that well in a way the majority of humanity has no desire to see, but there is, there is no such thing as any kind of theoretical democratic system here or republic system, parliamentary system elsewhere that is any, in any way at this point, in any way, representing the interests of the people. So th they're, this is their final bid. They are playing for keeps on this one. And Ukraine and now especially Gaza are the next steps in a poise to become a global 
fighting kinetic third world war of unprecedented proportion, I think within less than the next two years, we're going to see a cyber Patriot Act that like the October 2001 USA Patriot Act that will basically attempt to lock up the sort of last vestige of what people in the last almost four years were, were able to use to, to some degree for some people, get access to more independent perspectives and viewpoints that were not, not slave or hostage to official narratives and dogmas that corporate state press just absolutely censored and locked out any other point of view so it, it's it's getting pretty intense, and and at the same time, I'm very grateful, as always, to be alive at this point in our human family's history, as you are, Len, to attempt to present a wider field of view for people to consider other perspectives other than officially sanctioned ones. And Fletcher's life and his work and the work you've done with that and the work I did in the past and want to, to some degree, try and still uh, cre create new editions of Understanding Special Operations, it's, it's very difficult most of the time to have any optimism about being able to somehow support the success of the creative evolution of the human project. But what else can we do but try? Well, uh, yeah, you got to try to be optimistic. Don't be too <laughs> depressed about it. But That's right. um, a, a lot of times, you know, uh, it looks up like uphill. But, um, you know, the thing is that I, I just wanted to get a better understanding of the world I live in. And when I would read things or hear things from Fletcher, I was like, wow, you're, you're, you're kind of taking a bold step there. And he goes, I'm just trying to level the playing field was something mm -hmm. he would say. You know, like mm -hmm. they trot out so much bullshit, whatever, on the press. I leak something every now and then to another reporter that would maybe write about it. So people go, wait a minute, maybe uh, maybe we shouldn't just, for instance, trust Fauci or, or, <laughs> or, or, or you know, um, that lab in Wuhan, right? Right. Like, what are they really doing there? And who's funding that? Those kind of <laughs> questions don't want to be asked. Just what are they doing there, right? And and just the word gain-of-function research. And yeah. that big debate he had with Rand Paul. Yeah. Right. You know, like, you don't know what you're talking about. And it turns out he did. It's just this, this, this gain-of-function for the uninitiated means they're trying to make a weapon. They're weaponizing this. They want to know how they can get a hold of it and then use it against, quote, enemies. And then when it gets out, either, well, whatever, you know, you, you know, a different topic. But that, that'd be the kind of thing maybe in Fletcher's Day when they're talking about the Vietnam War. We're winning. We're winning. Right. And then you right. can go back to uh, Ukraine. Oh, we're winning. We're winning. And you, we, why America is funding so much money there is beyond me, especially if you look into the background of it. Yeah. You know, nothing against Ukrainian people at all. In nope. fact, that world of Russian Ukrainian those people are all aunts and uncles and cousins and that they're all that they're all related in that area yep. and in the eastern area of Donbass there's more Russian speaking than you know that's another debate another topic but you look into it you go it's not it's not cut and dried Russia didn't just kind of 
just all of a sudden, was it February 24th? Invade? They just invaded the evil Putin, you know? And, <laughs> and then, um, anyway, I'll do a show about that later. But I just wanted to uh, have you on to bring up Fletcher again, you know, the the real Fletcher that, that we know. And I was, you know, like I said to somebody else, I was proud to be known as a, a friend that I had his phone number. I could pick up the call and, and call him anytime, you know, just that was that was great. And he was unparalleled, really, because like in, in your book, he, he didn't have any peers. He didn't yeah. need peer approval. I mean, I think he said in, you know, br- daily pre-briefs and briefing in the in the gold room in the basement of the Pentagon, he was like one of the top 52 people. That's right. That were cleared. Yep. So when you're when you're that high up for um, detractors, supporters of the Warren Commission, supporters of Lee Oswald as the lone gunman year after year, you know, 60 years in, the CIA is holding back documents. Of course, Lee Oswald did it. We just can't tell you for 75 years. Oh, we're going to extend it. It's now indefinite. You know, you're you're not allowed to know. Or like I think George Bush said, they would uh, they would hang us in the streets if they knew what was really going on. <laughs> I don't know if that, that's the exact quote, but string us up or something like that, right? Comes comes close. Yeah. <laughs> one one final point on that: the beautiful censorship is really the key here, secrecy, which I mean it's in every government, but but censorship now, especially as we've seen in the last four years, that before 2020 would be unthinkable to people here. I like to quote Robert Heinlein from a capturing the the essential power exercised by censorship in his 1949 novel, Revolt in 2100. The story revolved around efforts to overthrow a 100-year theocratic totalitarian United States of America. And this pretty well sums it up. I began to sense faintly that secrecy is the keystone of all tyranny, not force, but secrecy, censorship. When any government, or any church for that matter, undertakes to say to its subjects, this you may not read, this you must not see, this you are forbidden to know, the end result is tyranny and oppression, no matter how holy the motives. Mighty little force is needed to control a man whose mind has been hoodwinked. Contrarywise, no amount of force can control a free man, a man whose mind is free, not the rack, not fission bombs, not anything. You can't conquer a free man. The most you can do is kill him. And and that's pretty much the dividing line. Uh, and, and so for those of us who are still able to breathe air and think and speak and feel, then we have an obligation to all those yet unborn to try from our position to do what we can to, as Fletcher said, level the playing field, but also to, to do what we can to help others see a little bit more of how our world actually operates. That's very, very important. And especially if you get to know the way Alan Dulles, you know, CIA, and then, like you say, secret team, Alan Dulles working for Sullivan Cromwell, yeah. law firm for the big, big money of America yep. that are, you know, for instance, the real movers and shakers. 
that's the game they want to play, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, uh, I thank you for reading those excerpts from Understanding Special Operations and the Secret Team. The, the fact that you went out and had questions, got him to elaborate, is groundbreaking. And I think people should read more Fletcher, listen to him more, so that should you come across criticisms of him, you can get an idea of really who he was, where he worked, how important he really was. And then you say um, a criticism that there's nothing, the Warren Commission solved it a long time ago. Lee Oswald did it. And for those of us who do not believe that cover story, we'll see that, well, make up your own mind. Make up your own mind. Listen yeah. to how Fletcher talks about uh, various items and topics in history. Quite often, they're not what you learned out of just an encyclopedia and I we all know what we think about Wikipedia now and yeah. the moderators and the and the fraud that that has turned out to be well it's it's all co-opted it's an yeah. incredibly corrupted system fundamentally at the core because money is the great god we just we're just going to get more money we just want money anything else pales in comparison to getting money so anything that gets in the way of getting money trash it kill it destroy it okay Okay. Mr. Ratcliffe, I'll speak again. And then Thank you, you very give much. me an update of what you're doing at Radical.org. I know will. You always have our articles on various many things. And like I said to you before, you're generally six months ahead of me. You know, what you're writing about and talking about hasn't even come on my radar yet. And then I realized, oh, Dave was warning us about this or, you know. So keep up that good work. I will do, do my best. Thank you very much for your encouragement. Okay. Thank you very much. Good night, Dave. Thanks always, Len. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Black Op Radio. If you know of any CIA involvement in the deaths of RFK and Martin Luther King. Well, you, you couldn't answer those questions. Nobody could, not honestly. Okay. Because it doesn't work that way. The involvement that is significant is the involvement in a suppression of the normal court procedures that any dead body is required to receive. What that means is a murder committed in the state of Texas must be tried as murder in the state of Texas. Okay. If that's not being done, the power that keeps that from being done is so enormous that that's where the problem is. And you don't identify that as either CIA or, or the Ku Klux Klan. Okay. But the power that can keep the state of Texas from carrying out a law that is carried out in every other murder case, because it's a law, is enormous. Now, whoever wants to define that power, then uh, is going to get to the heart of the matter. Everything else is irrelevant, because on the 29th of November, 1963, Lyndon Johnson met with the Attorney General of the State of Texas, by the name Wagner Carr. Right after that, he met with J. Edgar Hoover. And in his hand, when he met with J. Edgar Hoover, he had a list of names that he was going to announce that afternoon as being the Warren Commission. But he wanted Hoover to take one last look at it, uh, and Hoover had uh, come in with his records, uh, de declaring that all these people were uh, cleared to operate on such a commission, which Hoover did, with one exception. One was General Norstad. General Norstad was on the list, and somehow uh, Norstad was able to get himself removed. I don't think he wanted to be on it. It had nothing to do with Hoover. Well. The meeting with Wagner Carr, coming as it did, what, it, what he undoubtedly explained to Carr was, look, 
in the case of the death of the president, we are going to have this commission. I'm not going to have Congress investigate it. He says, I'm going to appoint this top commission. They're going to investigate it. And he probably told Carr, knock off this murder trial, uh, you know, indefinitely until we get this commission. It couldn't have been otherwise. This is conjecture, but still, it couldn't have been otherwise. And then, since then, I mean, that's the president getting involved now. And since then, there's never been a trial in the state of Texas. There's where the power is. No other way to define it. Well, it goes for California. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I traveled, you may have, I've, I've written this, so you may have seen it written. I have traveled to another country to talk with a person who at the time Bobby Kennedy was killed was standing eight or ten inches behind him and he had stopped more or less for uh, some cameramen who were in a way in that little doorway. So this person kind of bumped him and at that moment a gun went off in this person's right ear and the bullet went behind Bobby Kennedy's right ear and killed him. Well this person was so close that the gun caused serious trouble in the right ear, the explosion. That person was never called in as a witness, never asked about this or anything. And, it, it, and, and I, I saw the person in a foreign country. I don't know where. But if the court case in Los Angeles was, in a sense, as ineffective as the, the, even the no court case in Texas, I assume both are somehow related. But um, it, it doesn't do any good to try to figure out all the minute details of something like that, if the very obvious top level of, of things is not even done, which, I mean, a, a, a real court case. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so it would be ridiculous for somebody to try to say, who has that power? Sure. But it's pretty high up if it can keep a state from, from doing its required uh, uh, trial. And conversely, it couldn't be Castro or Khrushchev or the Mafia. They don't control the state of government in the state of Texas. At least I don't think they do. Removes a lot of these things that say other people were involved. How do, would those other people have anything to say about the state of Texas? Now, maybe they do, but if they do, they, we're, we're a long way down the road if that's true. Definitely so. Let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit here. Go to the Rockefeller Organization. I know we're, we're kind of opening up a broad kettle of fish here with the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations and Chase Manhattan Bank and so forth, but uh, is the Rockefeller organization really the, the, the bunch of black hats, so to speak, that it's recently been painted to be? Rockefeller begins with old John D. And he started selling oil that came out of the ground in Texas and Pennsylvania. And he realized very quickly that something that came out of the ground for practically nothing and then sold for quite a bit more was pretty good business. And he began to make deals with the railroads and uh, arranged things so that his company made a lot of money. Then he sent some scientists to, to Geneva to have the, the chemical society of the world declare that oil was an organic matter, therefore was probably the, was, was, was actually the product of the decomposition of formerly living matter. This process sort of proved to people that oil was in short supply. Like gold and silver, he created the fiction that oil had intrinsic value. And therefore, they had a right, you say, to sell it for a, a lot of money when really it was worth about the same as a bucket of water. Well, that may not seem like much, but upon that, they built this enormous 
organization called Standard Oil, which is so big the government had to break it down. But in breaking it down, that's paperwork, just like breaking down a telephone company. And they pretty much stayed together, plus the fact that by that time he had bought control of one of the biggest banks in New York, and had that control. And then the Rockefeller interests lost no time in acquiring the reserves of oil, major reserves of oil, all over the world. And one reason they did that is to make sure they remain to be reserved and not above ground. They leave them down there. The biggest oil known to exist in one place in the world today is under the city of Baghdad, and it's owned by the Rockefellers from an old franchise that they placed on it years and years ago. Hmm. Well, you can't help but realize that in the amount of money that the Rockefeller people control and the Rockefeller Foundation, that they're going to have a say about things that go on in the world. It just wouldn't make sense if you didn't. And in the process, the Rockefellers have knocked heads with some pretty powerful people. Nelson Rockefeller, for example, attempted to get Truman to accept the fact that the Cold War should be an economic war, such as we're in right now, rather than a military war. But George Keenan and his backers wanted it to be a military war and wanted the money to go to the military manufacturers and that sort of thing, armies and all that. The Rockefeller system laid back, but it doesn't mean they weren't powerful. In fact, they probably overall figured they could make money on both sides and it didn't matter how it came up. Another thing people don't seem to recognize is, is one of the biggest businesses in, in the country is, is the beef cattle business and the dairy business. Out near Madison, Wisconsin, the Rockefellers have a called the American Breeder Service, I think it is, where the finest bull stock exists in the world. And it's all, again, this whole story of natural selection. Mm -hmm. Everything about it is computerized. <clears throat> and the semen from that place is put into freezers and in test tubes, and big 18-wheeler trucks go all over the United States and deliver that to the people with cows to fertilize the cows, and they have gotten the dairy industry from cows who will say we're given 10,000 quarts of milk uh, a year or a month, the figures don't mean anything, up to 40,000. Increased the whole production of the dairy herd all over the country, Wow! and increased the beef production by producing cattle that are ever so much better than ever before. That's all Rockefeller. Now, if the Rockefeller organization has the initiatives to do those things with something like beef food, dairy products, oil, you can see that they are going to work themselves. And, and at the means they use to control the railroad industry, to control scientific opinion. And the scientists in Geneva did agree that oil was an organic substance. Well, of course it is. It's carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. But most scientists laugh at that because they know that oil did not come from the decomposition of formerly living matter. Oil is an ingredient of the earth just like any other rock or water and things like that. But from the Rockefeller point of view, it was very important to make people think that it came from a limited supply, uh, the decomposition of matter, because that would be a very limited supply. In fact, we've used up probably 10 times as much oil as ever could have been produced anyway by living matter. But they use these devices to produce money and to control business and the world. It's pretty hard to find an example like that anywhere. In the old days, royalty did that in certain places, but that's hard to beat.
uh, after the defeat of Japan, it was Rockefeller money that moved into Japan to rebuild the economy of Japan, as differentiated from the Marshall Plan that went over to Europe and rebuilt the economy of Germany uh, through uh, federal funds. But when you begin to know all those things, plus a lot of others, you just can't overlook the fact that the influence of the Rockefeller family is enormous and probably growing every day. So uh, I don't see how anyone realistically can overlook that. I, I was in the banking business. I knew the one of the leading vice president at Chase Manhattan Bank, and we were we were together developing the computer business in Chase Manhattan Bank. Chase was one of the quickest and, and uh, most adept at, a, at accommodating computers. Any bank, uh, we worked with Republic Bank in Dallas, we worked first first city in, in Chicago, we worked with Bank of America in California. Chase Manhattan moved right ahead of all. Got into the credit card business early. Anywhere the name Rockefeller appears, it seems as though brilliant people are there, they're dedicated people, and the Rockefellers lead them. So. Uh, I, I think it may be foolish not to recognize that the Rockefellers are pulling the strings and making the plans and making making things work and they control things. Okay. Any information on uh, any, any current CIA mind control programs like uh, Artichoke or MKUltra? Oh no, since I retired I have had uh, very little except social interest in the CIA so I couldn't, I couldn't you're, say you're out of the loop so yeah. to speak. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I retired. I wanted out. Got it. Nine years was enough. The uh, article that you wrote at the end of High Treason, as well as the information that you're coming forward here with me, for lack of a better question, why? Why are you coming forward with this information? Is it because you have a feeling that the public has a right to know, or is it no, other um, than that? The article that Harry printed in uh, High Treason, he had for many years. He was a professor at Harvard, and he was close for some connection that I'm not familiar with, with a, an, an editor of the Baltimore Sun. And the editor of the Baltimore Sun was heaping onto the Kennedy administration the reasons for the buildup in Vietnam, which are part of the party line things that came out of Pentagon Papers and sources like that. And we were just talking, and I said, Harry, that's not true. I said, when Kennedy was president, we had in Vietnam very few fighting men. Uh, very few. He said, well, what about the number 16,000? I said, well, there's a big difference between 16,000 and fighting men. And I explained all the difference of what, what, from tables and listings and everything else. So I was very familiar with it. He said, well, <clears throat> so then he called me back a couple of days later. He says, hey, he said, the editor printed if you'll write a story. And he said, he's, he's open-minded to print. So I wrote what you see in the back of, of uh, Harry's book, mm -hmm. and the editor wouldn't print it. So Harry liked it, and Harry kept it for years. Hmm. Meanwhile, he was writing this book, and he just figured there had to be somewhere in the book to put it, and he put it in there, and he didn't tell me to later, which started with me. I had written it for publication anyway. And Harry, being an honest man, sent me a check for it, which I didn't think he owed me. But anyway, why I wrote it <clears throat> was simply to try for him, I knew he was affiliated with Harvard, to be able to speak from documented material that it was not a Kennedy-era buildup that got us into the Vietnam thing. In fact, it was a reversal there. It was the difference between NSAM-263, which was to build down, and NSAM-273, which was to build up. So um, that, that was the origin of it. That's how it got there. There's an awful lot of that. that we, uh, see the, 
even this POW MIA business goes back to that because a lot of the men who are on the MIA roles actually were CIA people, not military people. They have no, they have no records, they have no way to say who they were. They don't want to admit they had spies working in Laos. The Laotians would, would hit them immediately if that was why they were trying to find old John Jones. He was a spy and we lost him in Laos. Well, that's, they, they wouldn't want to do that. There's an awful lot of that, but the rational story which I tried to account for in Harry's book was that the, in the Kennedy era, we had a lot of people there, but they were like running PXs, they were uh, helicopter maintenance people, but non-combatant roles, and that was what Kennedy had put out. We will not have combat men, and they will have some advisors and some maintenance people, and so on, so on, and so on, and that accounts for the numbers. But at the same time, you could have been silent about this whole thing. Oh, I see what you're trying No. <laughs> If Harry called me, I'd give him the information, same thing as you. I mean, I wouldn't say to you, I'd rather be silent than answer your question. Sure. Doesn't even occur to me. But what? But your your candor, Fletch, and your forthrightness can be contrasted rather sharply with a lot of your contemporaries. I don't have any contemporaries. See, well, that's I, another I'm thing. Not, I'm not saying peers. I'm, I'm saying people who have operated in the either intelligence or covert mm -hmm. operations field who have been in a, in a position to know, unlike people like Marx and Marchetti and Philip A.G. and so forth, who have kept their mouths shut. I'm not saying what you're doing yeah. is a bad thing. What I'm saying is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to yeah, find out well, why. I don't think it works that way, because it never occurred to me that way. Yeah. For instance, to use a name we all heard about, Secord. Okay. Secord was either a captain or a major in my day, and his boss was a guy named Adderholt who worked for me. Now, if I wanted something to happen in Thailand, I would ask Adderholt to send some people to Thailand. So Secord goes. Now, if he doesn't choose to write about what he did in Thailand, because he did it right up front with some people, knew where he was and what he was doing, that's a completely different thing. But for me to say what was going on in Thailand, I was in the Pentagon, remote from Thailand, so I write about it purely from where I sat. I don't say I was in Thailand doing this, but mm -hmm. I can talk about the project that was in Thailand because I set the people up for it, I sent the airplanes out there, and so on. I look at it completely different, and I don't think there are many people, I don't know, even the guys I dedicated the book to, my buddies, mm -hmm. uh, I even cellularized their work. And uh, when you come right down to it, if I see things in a book somewhere that are absolutely wrong, then I think probably I ought to write a little bit to try to correct it. And that's what an awful lot of what I did where it was. I see. Uh, when I wrote The Secret Team, it was just a little article, uh, you know, the magazine in Washington Monthly. Mm -hmm. Inconspicuous little magazine. Sure. And I wrote that because I had been talking with Derek Sherrill. And Derek said, uh, you know, nobody knows that this exists. Nobody knows that we have that. So I wrote this little article. Before The Washington Monthly came out, before I saw the article in print, two editors came to see me and said, that's the substance of a book. Will you write a book for us? People I didn't ever know, had never, I hadn't even seen the honor. I was surprised. Mm -hmm. One of them came down with a check in his pocket. The other one came down with a notebook. So I <laughs> with a check in his pocket. I shook hands with him, so I'll go home and start writing. Well, what they were after is what they could see in just that little article, that there is a layer here that makes things happen, and everything down below, and so it tied together things that they couldn't get any other way. I see. And that's what put the book out. Mm -hmm. Never occurred to me that it was anything but autobiography. Um, 
know, this, this is what I did. It's my own. I didn't go. To, I was not a reporter. I wasn't a writer. I wasn't a researcher or a student. I was just writing. I sat down and wrote what I did. And that's a lot different. Sure. It also contrasts with uh, the kind of uh, classified state secret type information, the naming of names that makes, uh, or at least made, Philip A. G. move to Switzerland. Yeah, he probably went to Switzerland with a ticket bought by CIA. I, I don't think he's ever left the agency. Really? I've read his stuff very carefully, and I don't think it's anti-agency. I think it's pro-agency. The same as Ellsberg handing out the Pentagon Papers. That was pro-agency. Same as Les Gelb collecting the papers. That was pro-agency. Les Gelb being now one of the senior guys in the New York Times. That's pro-agency. Mm. Those things don't happen. No, I'm, I'm, I'm coming less and less to think that there are actual legitimate accidents now, or coincidences. Now, I, I'm, you know, I don't write about AG and I don't write about Marchetti because, uh, in a way, I work with him. Hell, I work with Vic when I was in the, I just happened to be there in Dulles' office the day Elder was leaving and John Clark was coming in and Vic was coming in to help the new guy, John Clark, so I've known Vic since way back in, in the halls up there, and he was uh, not a supernumerary by any means, but he wasn't one of the, he wasn't Des Fitzgerald or something like that, but he was, and he was there. Another thing was he was there all the time. He knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. So I know exactly the circumstances he were, and when he writes, he's been writing very truthfully. No problem with it. But uh, some of the other fellows, when they write, I mentioned one in the book here, because it was kind of fun. Uh, Anyway, I got a whole chapter about this guy that wrote an article under the supposedly explaining the Ellsberg situation at Chester Cooper. Cooper, I think. Okay. Well, it is a horrible article. Propaganda. Pure propaganda. So I just, for the hell of it, I wrote it about him and I said, look, he writes this because he's trying to cover this stuff. He writes this because he's trying to cover it. Well, it's kind of a useful way to present the idea that that's what happens. Mm -hmm. Lud Oliphant was the King's ambassador, King of England's ambassador of Turkey in the Ottoman Empire days, came back from Turkey in about 1862 mm -hmm. and uh, started talking with his inner circle of friends uh, about, about psychic things. I don't know if they use the word hypnosis, uh, hypnosis in those days. But he stated that while he was with the Turks and various leaders in that area, not many political leaders, but leaders of thought, probably religion and so on, that he felt there was a very strong case to be made for psychic research. And as a result of his strong interest, people like Balfour and other top leaders in England eventually created this uh, British organization for psychic research, which trickled over into the United States and people like Leland Stanford and others all the time. And, and it, it became a very active business for these people in very high leadership positions. I have never been able to discover how real they made this, but I have a feeling that they, they believe it's very, very important, and they don't want people messing around with it, and they don't want the uninitiated to become aware of it. It trickles down into skull and bones and things like that, but I don't know how to evaluate it beyond Skull that. and bones meaning a secret society? At Yale. Yeah, I see. Which Bush is a member of. Many other, many of the more prominent people in this country are members. If they come out of Yale, 
skull and bone. That's very, very that, important that, that sounds really reminiscent of the Club of Rome or the Bilderbergers or uh, well, no, uh, more, much more focused than that. The, 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 the Bilderbergers is um, is, is an interesting thing, but I don't think it's got half the power people attribute to it. I think it's more a group of people who have common interests, and they they. Uh, uh, you might almost say a Rotary Club has that. You know where the people uh, cooperate with each other in a business. But it's not sphere. a focused organization, the Rotary Club. No, no, very broad. But to to my way of thinking, when Bernhardt created the Bilderbergers and brought in people of importance, it was that um, had power anyway, and mm -hmm. it became more powerful because it was. See, the power of association is really what's strong. Any thousand people, if they would really associate, if they would really organize themselves, could do damn near anything they want in this world. If you could do that. Association is very strong. Even three people can do about ten times more than one person. Sure. So we, we have to think about those things. Those are just natural laws. And, uh, but I think the, the skull and bones is focused directly within the Yale community, but I think that's what makes the Yale community so strong. But it's got its roots in the theory behind psychic phenomena? I would assume so, but I think it's got its roots also in uh, theories just behind ordinary power, the use of money, the use of power. Really? And that sort of thing. I taught at Yale, you know, from 46 to 49, and it was right at the time when Bush was a student there, Bill Buckley was a student there, and a lot of others, and because I was a member of the faculty, I made a lot of good friends in the faculty crowd and everything, and Yale is a very powerful, self-focused organization. Mm -hmm. Not just anti-Harvard, I mean, there is a lot of power emanates from Yale, and Skull and Bones is the epitome of that. Well, just by coincidence, a person I used to know had been the CO of Okinawa mm -hmm. back when it was still, you know, very, very much a military installation and not just a resort that it's becoming today. Uh, and I got him to write a letter to ONI for me, Office of Naval Intelligence, to ask them if they ever had any psychic research programs underway. Well, I know darn well they did, but I wanted to see what they'd say. And they said, no, of course not. We've never been interested in this. We are not now, and we have no plans to be. And I figured that, well, if they could give this song and dance to the CEO, or the former CEO of Okinawa, the largest military installation in, in the Pacific, that uh, their level of denial is pretty ironclad. It's pretty high up. Well, see, by going to ONI, you're going also to another skull and bones. ONI is not part of the Navy, really. ONI is, is, is itself and is the most powerful intelligence organization in the country. Really? CIA has uh, nowhere near the uh, ability and uh, history and uh, background of ONI and, and, and the individuality, too. You know, ONI goes back again to British roots okay. and, and to very strong British roots, more it's just much, it doesn't, you can't match ONI with the Army's intelligence, with the Air Force intelligence, or with Central Intelligence. No way. ONI is very separate. Correct me if I'm wrong now. When the OSS was created during World War yeah. II, didn't Wild Bill Donovan then, through the metamorphosis of the National Security Act in 47, then make it become the CIA? Isn't that how it happened? Well, yeah. Uh, but the OSS, a lot of people forget was under the Joint Chiefs of Staff during World War II. They were not by themselves. Okay. And Dunneman took orders, in other words. And their work was not intelligence. It was activity, action, mm -hmm. operational. And uh, 
in some places it was absolutely brilliant. And a lot of the action they took was what you might call business-oriented rather than military-oriented. The contacts they had in Germany were the contacts that American business had or American law firms had in Germany. The contacts they had in Hungary in the same way. And when they picked up Galen at the end of the war, they just extended that back into the Ukraine and, and uh, Eastern Europe. And, and so the, the OSS had, had uh, a short life but had access into areas that were pretty important, but mainly through, again, their adoption by the British, and so that when they went to the Jedburgh schools and things like that, they were getting pretty good training. But they were still individuals. It didn't have any roots, really. And at the end of the war, Truman and his associates felt that one of the real problems was that U.S. intelligence was not coordinated. And uh, this carried over into Congress, because Truman was a senator and knew everybody in Congress. He said, look, by God, we're going to have intelligence. Let's coordinate it. Let's do something right. And one of the first things he did was abolish OSS. He saw no value for it. And uh, that got, you might say, the businessmen out of intelligence, he thought. Well, they preserved an office called Office of Policy Coordination, OPC. And OPC was preserved because they had these agents that you just can't cut off. I mean, they, they need support. Their lives depend upon it. Some guy working the Ukraine that's been there, put there as an agent, you've got to keep up, keep contact with it. So OPC was put under Frank Wisner, who was Alan Dulles' closest associate in Europe during the World War II days, and both of them active in OSS. And OPC was technically under nobody, but the head of it, Wisner, had to be nominated by the State Department and approved by the Defense Department or vice versa. So even that was a strange thing. But what it meant was that it was just hanging there trying to keep together some assets and resources and, and uh, techniques that would have just collapsed without that kind of protection. And then in 1947, the end of 47, November, the National Security Act was passed and the main thrust of that was to create the Defense Department and the National Security Council. And a lot of people have ignored this, but under the National Security Council, then they stuck this central coordinating organization. And the only operational word in the law with respect to CIA is the word coordination. There, the word collection, for example, the fundamental business of, of, of intelligence doesn't appear in the law, the word collection. The word collation doesn't appear in the law. It's coordination, that's what they thought they were buying. Well, when Walter Beetle Smith who had been Eisenhower's chief of staff during the campaign in Europe, in a very important move, was made the first ambassador after the war to Moscow, replacing Harriman, who had been ambassador during the war, two very important ambassadorial positions in the chronology. Beetle Smith came back from Moscow in Truman's term and was made head of the new CIA not the first head, but he was made the head of the CIA just about the time the Korean War started. He told Truman that he wasn't going to put up with this foolishness about OPC. He was going to merge it right in the CIA and run it from there on out. And he got away with it. So that was the residual of OSS as it got into the CIA. And then in 49, Truman asked Alan Dulles and a man named Matthias Correa and a man named Jackson to study this new CIA, find out what the hell was going on. Well, he must not have realized it, but Alan Dulles was a speechwriter for Thomas E. Dewey, uh, Truman's. Uh, That's rather opponent. early on in the Secret Team. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And unaccountably, Truman ran the election 
and that ended Dulles' efforts. But when when Eisenhower became president, he he brought a Beetle Smith over in the State Department under John Foster Dulles, and he put Dulles in as head of CIA. So you can see the maneuvering on the business side more than anything else. Well, the funny thing about the two Dulles people that most people have discounted, going back to your original thrust, is sure. that whenever they traveled around the world or anywhere giving speeches, they did it under the auspices of the World Council of Churches. And what that meant, they were getting back into the English business, into the area of psychic research, into the groups that were involved in that kind of thing, and pr mm -hmm. promoting that around the world actively. So in between jobs in the government, that would be the way they travel. In their government, they had a portfolio. Alan Dulles and John Dulles yeah. were both traveling under the aegis of the World of, Council of, of Churches. World Council of Churches. That was their, uh, if they were speaking in London, they were there not as uh, the former this in the government or not this, but uh, speaker from the World Council it's of Churches. the same Alan Dulles who was on the Warren Commission later on. So the same guy. This is certainly at wild variance with the party line in this country that well, says, well... you see, you know. they were both senior partners. They are both okay. senior partners of, of Sullivan Cromwell, the biggest law firm in the world, the most powerful law firm in the world. And Sullivan Cromwell had enormous business contacts in the pre-war Germany. And when the war started, World War II, they refused to close their office, and they stayed in Germany. And the only and, and Foster Dulles was finally ordered home after Pearl Harbor. Hmm. And then he closed it well. That meant that their close-up relationship with key Germans was hot. So they put Alan Dulles in Geneva to keep up the relationship, calling it an OSS job, when really he was just doing a Sullivan Cromwell job. And that way they kept the thing going. And mm -hmm. the Cold War came out of that when Russia finally got back to the Romanian border on about 1st of September in 44. Uh, a year before the surrender of Japan, to put it in the chronology, Frank Wisner, working for Dulles, was in Bucharest, and he arranged, as if, what, what happened when the, one army leaves and another comes in and a thing like that is, the German armies were, were getting the hell out of there, fast they could move, and so there was about a two weeks hiatus between the departure of the Germans and the arrival of the Soviets. And the Soviets were coming in slowly. They were. They were looking into everything as they moved. They were organizing everything as they were taking over everything. So they moved and moved and moved. And they weren't rushing after the German army. They were just coming in slowly. They were taking over for, for forever, that kind of thing. They were doing it right. Well, in that two-week hiatus, Wisner and a bunch of Nazis, or and ex-Nazis that he'd been working with, convincing them that there was a future for them, wrapped up all the Bucharest records from the Ukraine and and everything that the Germans had put together. Absolutely fabulous and, and most important records. And in order to get them out of Hungary, including the people of the Nazis he was working with and, and, and Nazi sympathizers who were Romanians, he took 750 American war prisoners, mostly aircraft crews, and called headquarters and said, look, we've got to get some Air Force planes in here right away and fly these guys out of here. Well, no way we were going to fly into Romania with the Germans with the Russians coming in at the same time so they told him to put him on a train and he got he, somehow I don't know how the hell he did it he arranged a train a freight train <laughs> carried these guys across Turkey and the railroad line north of Aleppo in Syria drops below the border of Turkey because the mountains come down there and for about 
for about uh, 25, 30 miles, it's two or three miles in, in Syrian territory. Mm. So my boss, a general in Cairo, told me that we wanted to go up to Aleppo one morning in uh, September of 44. And uh, so I crank up the plane and we go up to Aleppo and we landed right near the old fortress there and met with a British major, whom I'm sure was an intelligence. We asked about where we could land, because there were no airports to speak of, to meet this train coming. I don't know whether the major knew the train was coming or not, but we want to know about landing there. Went back to Cairo that night, and the general said, uh, Prouty, stop every plane coming in and unload them until you got 37 planes. I think it took 37 to pick up 750 people. Mm -hmm. And he said, you'll be back there tomorrow morning early, but land where we, place we reconnoitered, <clears throat> just right beside the railroad track. And the ground was hard, and we could land on it. So I took all these transport pilots who had never been up there, and they followed me up, and we landed just any old place, sat the planes on the ground. Mm -hmm. And here comes this freight train, and it stopped. Immediately, the doors slid, well, the doors were open anyway. The doors <laughs> and the field was full of guys just running, running across the field. Mm -hmm. So I was the only, I was, a, I was a chief pilot, I was the only senior guy there. I just <clears throat> hold my hands up to him and tell him to get on the plane. <clears throat> when the plane was full, I waved it off and got rid of it and so on and so on. And back on, and we had brought, brought some nurses with us and, and my plane was a VIP plane, had comfortable seats and we'd put up some cots. And uh, finally we got down to the last load and these poor guys were, were coming out on crutches either with one leg or one or two of them with no legs. And the only reason they lost the legs was that was the way the natives, the barbarians, Cut the leg off rather than put him in prison. Just cut the leg off at the knee. Neat cut at the knee. And the guy, that made him prison. He couldn't run. And we finally, my plane was full of those. I, don't know, I think I had 25 or 30 of those guys on my plane. And then there were a bunch of guys standing on my plane. <coughs> and of course, everything was hurry and hurry, let's go. And I, so I took off last. I took off with the nurses and with the guys that were hurt and with these extra guys in the plane. And we, on the way down to Cairo, I went back to everything was going and realized that I had a bunch of guys on there that weren't Americans. I've been told all these guys are POWs. Mm -hmm. And I still have to this day, they, these guys are writing their name on the back of Bulgarian money or whatever, and I still to this day have those money and the names I could find them, but I can't read the damn names, they're, they're in Kyrillic language. Mm. Well, we flew to Cairo and the legitimate prisoners were sent right over to a hospital immediately. And these other guys just went in the thin air. Well, that was the first uh, act of the Cold War. That was the first action by military authorities in the United States against our Russian ally. This was because these were pro-Nazis. We were saving an element. Then I re began to realize that that ran all the way through the Nazi element in Germany. Certain ones realized they were being selected by business contact to survive the end of the war. And I don't know whether you have noticed this or not, but the foreign minister of Germany at the end of Hitler's days was a man named von Krosig. And von Krosig made a speech on the 3rd of May in 45. The surrender came, I think, on the 12th or 13th of May. So before the surrender of the Germans, he made a speech in which he said that the world should recognize the Soviets were marching across Eastern Europe and lowering an iron curtain that would close Eastern Europe off from the rest of the world as long as there was this cruel and 
everything Russian domination. Mm -hmm. The speech was not for Germans. The speech was for the rest of the world. Winston Churchill read that speech in the publication of the London Times on May 3rd, 1945. It's still there. Anybody who reads that title see that speech by the German. He wrote to Harry Truman, whom he had never met. And he called that to his attention. But he didn't say he was quoting. He just said, you know, the Soviets are lowering this iron curtain against Europe. Truman thought that was wonderful. He wrote back to old Churchill and said, hey, how about come over here sometime and, and let's make a speech out of this thing. So in 46, hmm. Churchill came, got on a train here, the presidential train, went all the way to Missouri on a train with a whole bunch of reporters where he talked to all of them on a train, softened them all up, made this great speech in Westminster, uh, Missouri. And so Churchill is supposed to be the father of the Iron Curtain, but he isn't. It was von Krosik, and von Krosik was one of these selected Nazis who was being picked up by, by the U.S., the same as uh, Galen was and many others. And th that was the, the birth of the Cold War. I was just going to say that it's interesting that, that I would utter these words within the confines of the National Press Club, but being a journalist for 14 years, I've heard it often said that journalists never print the truth. They print what people say. And the fine line between those two is very interesting, because here you know the true genesis of the phrase Iron Curtain, whereas that's not what I was taught in high school. But that's been printed in the New York Times. I wrote that in a letter to the New York Times, and much to my amazement, they printed it. So I can show that to anybody now on a, on a page, on the editorial page of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And they, they not only printed it, but they made a big illustration, which was quite apropos. Hmm. So, you, see, your statement is pretty good. Not that reporters don't write the truth. Reporters write the truth, the editors won't print it. The editors re-edit it, or just plain won't print it. The biggest job in the editorial game is omission. Reporters write. Some of my best oh, friends yeah. are top-notch reporters. One of them had an office over here on Pennsylvania Avenue. I went over to meet him for a prearranged lunch. I walked in his office and his little secretary, who knew me very well, looked at me and there were tears coming down. She said, go in his office. Oh. So I went in. He wasn't there. There's a hole in the wall. She said, that's where his typewriter went. He was working for Newsweek. He had worked late Friday night because his material was going to be the cover of Newsweek, the cover article of Newsweek mm -hmm. that next week, and it goes to bed Friday night, Saturday and Sunday they get it out, and Monday it hits the, the stands. When it came out on Monday, they had put another article in there, and his article was junked. In other words, they, what he printed was right. I knew what it was right. I'd talked with them a lot about it. They decided on it. He was just so goddamn mad, he threw his typewriter right through the wall, quit, and left. About two weeks later, he's an assistant editor of New York Times. I mean, he's a, he's a talented guy. Yeah. But when they hurt him too bad sometimes, sometimes these guys get, they believe in what they're writing. Oh, sure. So most of the writers I know write truth. It's the goddamn machine that won't take the truth. And the machine hires the editors. Mm -hmm. The owners won't take the truth. The editors are forced to print it that way. I sit in the club here with writers and editors all the time. I have no trouble with them. Mm -hmm. But they cannot or I talk to them just as freely as I'm talking to you. But they won't print it. And I don't mean by that, I'm sort of a, I don't mean anything by my, what I say, but what I mean is I can talk about things I know about. Like I was the pilot on this flight with these guys coming out of, of Bucharest. I know who was on the plane and I still have mementos and I still have photographs. Mm -hmm. But uh, they, they won't print that.
interesting. But see, that goes back to how the OSS was fitted in to the CIA. And wittingly, when Beetle Smith and Wisner, and then later Alan Bellis got into it, they totally ignored what the law said, that it should be a coordinating organization, and made the CIA into an operational organization with intelligence as its cover story. And it, it still remains today because uh, so few people even look into it. I don't know whether you know it or not, I spent 10 years in the banking business. And they were interesting 10 years. Uh, I went to the Graduate School of Banking at the University of Wisconsin. And I, uh, that's, that school is uh, uh, run by the American Bankers Association. And you're not supposed to go unless you've been a banking officer for 10 years. Mm. So that the people who go, 1,500 a year, it's a very interesting school. 1,500 a year and, and accumulating three years, there's 4,500 key bankers are involved in this thing by attendance at, at the campus and then by correspondence during the year. And it's a real laid-on course. You really get important work. Well, while I was there, because I could spell the word computer, and most bankers couldn't, I was made a charter member of the American Bankers Association Committee on Automation Planning and Technology because in the mid-60s, bankers, one of the latest professions to hear about computers, were, were being persuaded to get into the computer business because mm -hmm. banking and computer work is built for each other. And uh, having got into that committee at the top of the uh, Bankers Association work, I began to see how the biggest banks work. In fact, I was instrumental in getting a contract for the Air Inc. Corporation, which are dominant in the computer world with connection with airlines and the travel industry, to, to convert the Federal Reserve System to computers. Hmm. Well, when you have to do that kind of work, you really find out what's going on. And uh, it, were, it was very interesting. Well, I don't think many of us really understand the leadership role, and I mean leadership of our total society, that banks hold. Only the bankers at the top, the people that work behind a teller when they don't know what the hell's going on, but, but the banking industry, say 12, 15 top banks, really lead this world. And I don't mean this country, I mean this world. Because today, all finance, all communications, all transport is one world whether people are ready to believe that or not, it is. And that changes a lot of things about such things as Hubbard is pointing out with the Bank of England because that kind of control is not only psychic, but it's very basic. And yet, money today doesn't leave any footprints anymore. There's no, no. such thing as money. The federal United States government has no money. There are, however, electronic tracks. Yeah, tracks, footprints. If I use my... My credit card a lot. People will know where I've been. Well, you just pick up the phone, me. they know. Sure. When you get your phone bill, you find out that at 7.30 on the evening, you call such and such a number and a charge of 55 cents. Mm -hmm. All right. When you think that that thing is studied by a computer, if it's a matter of interest to the powers that be, they know you made that call and who you called. Sure. And that's all over the world today. That's what the National Security Agency does. Supposedly, though, um, isn't it illegal for the National Security Agency to be involved in domestic surveillance? <clears throat> you threw in a word that they don't understand called illegal. Okay. Because if they're listening to radio waves 
they play like it's just radio waves. It has nothing to do with borders and uh, a nation. And they listen to radio waves everywhere. They listen to the emanations that come from motors, spark plug emanations. They can tell you if a truck went through your town uh, fast or slow. They listen to the changes in the high-tension wire transmission waves. So they know when all the lights in Topeka come on and when all the lights went off. They know when a bunch of uh, Russian trucks are going through the forest to a place. They know when the utilities come on and turn off. They know so much about what is going on that is transmitted electronically by all means that they can't do it by borders and they just do it totally. So if they happen to pick up your phone call, that's just part of the game. Certain doorways that are commonly used, like say entrance and exit of the Pentagon where 35,000 people work, or a major supermarket and a big shopping center can be implanted with devices that can just about tell you who's going through. It's complicated and it isn't, I don't think it's used uh, all the time, but it's used to follow people if they know where they are. There are all kinds, you can, uh, sound waves reflect on windows that devices, laser related to Doppler devices can tell by the reflection on the window what's going on. Or even what's uh, being said? Sure. I used a word earlier that I should correct. When I say that the NSA listens to all this and knows, they don't know. They record. It's a computer that then sorts it out later by desire because they know either your voice or your number, and then they can know what you said. But the indiscriminate picking this stuff up is so voluminous that there's no way they can know what's going on. So it would force then some operative within the NSA to also look through a yeah. needle in a haystack. That's right, right. It, but the computer does it for him. But if he doesn't look for it, the computer won't find it because the computer wasn't told. There still is a long gap between all this that the human brain is running. Okay. You know, it's, it's, it's always interested me that Stanford Research become so important because it was uh, a member of the British Society of Psychic Research was the first president of Stanford. Interesting. And Leland Stanford, in a seance, talked with his son, who was dead, and his son told him to create a university. Interesting. That it was important to have a university. Yeah, I recall you mentioning that, yeah. yeah. So the linear approach to Stanford goes through Leland Stanford, comes from the British Society of Psychic that he was a member of, and then when he set up the university, he took the president of either the University of Indiana or the University of Illinois, who was also a member of the British Society of Psychosurgery, and made him the president of Stanford. Mm -hmm. I ought to know his name, but I can't at the moment remember it. Interesting connection. So the, the line is, is pretty clear on how they put this thing together, mm -hmm. and the prominence of, of SRI in many, many things. For instance, SRI ran what, what we call the energy crisis. They prepared all the propaganda for, and the steps that were organized. And they got the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington to, to do the propaganda work. And uh, the thing was orchestrated magnificently by SRI. Mm. And it cost us six or eight hundred billion dollars. That's pretty important work. Let's go back to your friend in Huntsville, Alabama for just a moment. I know that you and I have discussed this on the phone, but I'd like you to reiterate just a little bit. You and I can both pretty well agree that MJ-12 is a hoax, or well, appears to be. Yeah, I, I don't find it credible. I, the, the material they use doesn't stand up. I think it's like the report from Iron Mountain. 
I think somebody wanted to say something and get some people thinking, so we used the device. Do you think that the report from Iron Mountain really isn't what it says it is? That it, well, that it's it a novel. The guy wrote a novel. He made it up. Well, that's what he says. But what he put in it is perfectly true. In fact, the statements he has in it, I heard in the halls of the Pentagon at that same period almost daily. And, and the thing is, you see, he's taken information. Uh, well, let's just say like if somebody recorded what we're saying and then decided to write a novel mm -hmm. and use the same words. I mean, it's a device that a writer will use. But Lewin has written a very clear article about what he was doing. He said he knew this stuff. He figured it was important. It was going through his mind and his relationships with people. So he wrote a novel to say it. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty powerful way to deal with it. And a lot of people who knew what was going on at the day uh, took offense to that because he opened up subjects that they didn't think should be in a public domain at that time. But he said, what the hell, it's just a novel. You don't have to believe it. But, you know, but they did believe it, and they, they, it upset them. Maybe I don't quite follow you here. It was my understanding that, that the report from Iron Mountain was an accurate report of what was discussed by a certain highly appointed group. That's what the novel's about. But a novel's fiction. There's a novel about Iron Mountain? <laughs> you can have a novel in which the truth is the main theme, but there's enough fictional material in it so that the guy... What the author's trying to say is, look, this stuff is... The substance is true, mm -hmm. but I have created a novel in order to present this true substance. It's borderline, but that's what he, that's what he did because he didn't want to attribute it to people or, or and he didn't want to have to explain who was involved, whether he could or couldn't. Maybe he couldn't have done it. I don't know. Well, I don't want to be confused about this, but it does supposedly mm -hmm. reflect a mindset that was at work up here. Mm -hmm. This is a Xerox copy of a copy of the book that I picked up in a used bookstore. I don't recall reading anywhere there that the fellow says that he couched a lot of this true information in fictitious terms. No, he didn't put it in here. If you notice, it's only introduction by Lewin, see? Right. Well, that's part of his novel also. Dell? Yeah. Oh, well, by arrangement with Dial Press. <clears throat> now, who's Dial Press? They're the original pr publishers. Okay. See, copyright 1967. Now, when, was, when did Dell print it? Yeah, see, they, a lot of people have played games with this because it is so clever. This is very important subject matter. I, see, I've, told, I've used a lot of this <coughs> over and over and over again, and all I ever say is that you just can't equal this subject matter. See, they receive serious attention regardless of its origin. He's the author of A Treasury of American Political Humor. <laughs> I, I know quite a bit about this. I got a letter only yesterday from my editor, who was senior editor Prentice Hall, and who was fired because he did my book. We remain good friends. I got a letter just yesterday about his personal relationship, knowledge, friendship with this gentleman. Mm -hmm. And uh, What does he say about this so-called report? Well, he says what Lohan said when he wrote about it. I'll have to dig out that thing I got. It's a, it's a, it's a page out of New York Times Sunday Supplement review of books. You know, every Sunday they have a review of books in the New York Times. 
And uh, oh, many years later, Lewin wrote that. He said, people have bugged me about this thing. He said, I sat down to write a novel. I sat down to try to make it as true to life as I could. And he said, now people are having trouble with it because what they're, what they're doing is they're thinking that somewhere else this report sits as a report and, and it's not my novel. See, well, I know another book that's done very much like this. There's a book called Zapata. And Zapata tells everything about the Bay of Pigs almost as intimately as if somebody was right there. Well, and then there's not a single word in it of editor editorializing or anything. They just publish that like that, put covers on it, sell a book. Well, what they should have said, they should have written a preface. Zapata is a verbatim printing of a report written by Maxwell Taylor, General Taylor, to President Kennedy. And in writing the report, he was associated with Admiral Arley Burke and Alan Dulles and Bobby Kennedy by orders of the president. So the four of them sat in a room and they had witnesses come in for a period of about six weeks and they produced this report. So the report is, is factual. It was signed by Taylor and approved unanimously by the other people there. When you think of the four guys involved, it's phenomenal. Think you put such four different people in the same room for six weeks, impossible. Sure. So the report is, 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 is as accurate and as true as their knowledge of the event could create, considering that they listened to a whole stream of witnesses over that period. And it just happened that where they were working was just a few rooms down the hall from me and a lot of the witnesses who were friends of mine sat in my office until they were called and drank my coffee and talked with me. And an amazing thing. Well now if I had taken that report and decided not to do what these other publishers did but put it out as a novel and sort of dressed it up a little bit more I could have written a novel about a true report. In the case of Lewin he maintains there is no true report. That his true report was part of his novel. So he structured it, and, and but my interest in it is that when I first read it years and years ago, <clears throat> I had the feeling I was sitting down to lunch with people I used to go to lunch with daily, like the uh, McNamara Whiz Kids, you know, mm -hmm. Ed Katzenbach and people like that who were very important people at that time, and they were saying the same damn things that Lewin was saying in his report from Iron Mountain. So I kept thinking, you know, maybe there is a report. Maybe it was never formalized, but geez, I've heard these same things said, that without war we can't run this country and all that sort of stuff. And I've heard, and of course Ed Katzenbach was uh, Dean of Princeton, a smart man, knowledgeable guy, and then many of these other guys that were working at that, in that same era up there, there were never so many PhDs in the Pentagon as there were in the Kennedy era. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I have never talked personally to Lewin, but what he wrote my belief is he learned from associates and then set it down in this form that he thought he could put out without having to say, well, I got this from so-and-so and I got this from this guy and the report says this. He just writes the whole damn thing, says, here it is, read it. And for subject matter, it's incomparable. It's accurate, timely. He bridges the right months and years. He has the subject as stated as well as any authority could have, mm -hmm. but he doesn't attribute it to anybody. He just says, I wrote that out of my own head. Well, that's 
his way of presenting the story, and it's a powerful story. In fact, today it's more powerful. Right now, as we sit with troops out in the Persian Gulf, the book explains why we're there. Mm -hmm. Bush can't run the country without putting his tanks out somewhere. Panama, Granada, uh, the desert, and the next place, I don't know where, but he can't run the country without that. And that's, that's what Lewin is saying. Lewin also mentions uh, the possibility of a biological catastrophe as, mm -hmm. as, a, as a means of taking all of this war machine money and put it in, and, and still spending it without war. Yeah. yeah. And that will probably be part of the game, but I don't think that it will be part of the game until they have, and probably have already done it, developed the, the immune technology because overriding all of it. If I were going to write the report of Iron Mountain or the report of any of this stuff, I would make the, the title a very simple single word that everybody understands. I'd just say Armageddon. And it explains everything. Because if you have a way of getting rid of people the way Malthus thought we ought to do, or Darwin, you at least have got to preserve the 144,000. <laughs> you know, uh, believe it or not, you may have heard this, Casper um, Weinberger used to speak a lot publicly. Mm -hmm. And at one point, uh, a student up at Harvard asked him if he believed in the Armageddon. He says, I sure as hell do and hope it comes right away. In other words, he's saying, I'm, 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 my number, I've got, I've got, my number's on there, so I'm okay. Weinberger. Casper Weinberger. Former Secretary of Defense. Yeah. And uh, the question and answer is recorded. What an interesting revelation. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Hmm. You're listening to Black Op Radio. This may be an odd question for me to ask, but why is it that a person of your um, connections would also want to connect up with, a, with, say, the Church of Scientology, which is so heavily under attack by the quote-unquote establishment? Well, I didn't. I connected up with a law firm in London and, uh, and, and realized the church was involved in, the, in the, what the law firm was doing. Okay. And it was an extremely intriguing thing because it had to do with these records. This... Uh, the contact man who was in the church's office here came over to me and he said, we need somebody that can help us with our law firm here, uh -huh. and which I thought was right here in Washington. So I uh, said, so, well, I'll be glad to. And, and uh, I, I didn't, I didn't really, I had no idea what, what I was dealing with. So I talked to the, this guy called me from London and he said, we've got a problem with, with a whole stack of papers that are U.S. government type papers and we're just trying to learn everything we can from them. And I said, okay, let me take a look at them and we'll go to work on them. So I thought maybe two or three weeks later I'd get a bundle from London. I was having breakfast the next morning and a cab driver ringing my doorbell. They had sent it by the, um, by the supersonic plane, the Concorde, <laughs> given to a cab driver, and the cab driver brought it to me. The whole damn thing took just a few hours, and they put it on my table. And there it all was. So I, it was, and it was that much, it came in a box, it was that much paper. Hmm. So I started going through the things, and... I won't repeat, it was the sort of thing I told you, that, that they had either misinterpreted or totally been unable to interpret a lot of these papers that pertain to him and his records and all kinds of stuff, and it was a very intriguing project. And that's another thing, it was after the book had been published, because that's how they found me. I and see. They decided that if I could do the book, I could do the work they wanted. Sure. Hmm. But it was intriguing, and then they sent me more when they found out. And then I went from that law firm to a law firm here in Washington. I went to several law firms in Los Angeles. And I was always working with the law firms. And as a result, I got to know more about Scientology than, than, than Heber does. <laughs> you know, I, at least I got to know more about, about Hubbard than, than a lot of people do. Because I was reading inside intimate handwritten notes and government notes and all that sort of thing. Hmm. 
and I went to St. Hill and talked to the old people over there that had worked with him. And I mean, I went to Copenhagen for a case there that involved things. It really, really a lot of work, but it was all, all oriented around the legal aspects of getting all this stuff straight. And they had built up a, a fright, <laughs> a scare about understanding the government. It was funny. They, you know, if you don't understand it, then it scares you. And I tried to make it sensible. I said, now, wait a minute. There's nothing to worry about here. Just do it right. You've got no problem. And we gradually unraveled a lot of stuff. And I even got the lawyers in to have meetings with people in the government. Before that, they didn't have the temerity to do it, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, we did a hell of a lot of work. But that's how I got to know all of this. I, I probably know more intimately about Mr. Hubbard than, than anybody except 10 or 15 people. But anyway, I, I probably know as much or more than anybody about his military record. I'm the one that found his military record. They didn't even know. He had never said anything about it because it was intelligence. He wouldn't tell them. Did you find the story about uh, when Hubbard was in a submarine off of Portland? No, he wasn't in a submarine. He sank a submarine. Well, okay. He was I knew in it a had something to do with a submarine. And it was a highly classified operation that most people were not allowed to know about. Well, not till afterwards. He was in a subchaser on a training exercise, more or less. He's a very good ship commander. You know, uh -huh. when he went into the Navy, he had more papers for more types of ship than any other captain in the United States. Hmm. Young man. And that is on the letterhead of Senator Magnuson of the state of Washington. In other words, it's not something he bragged about. It's something the senator bragged about. The senator wrote a letter to Franklin D. Roosevelt and said, this man ought to be brought on duty right away. We need him. And they did. And Roosevelt's the reason he came on duty. In mm. fact, I still think there's more to that than those letters because his first duties were with Vincent Astor. Vincent Astor was Roosevelt's personal friend, very, very close friend, and was the chief intelligence man in the United States. Most people don't realize that. Now, this is Astor of the Astor fame. Oh, yeah, yeah, Vincent Astor, yeah. big time. Hubbard was sent immediately to work for Vincent Astor in New York. Hmm. Well, that was no casual uh, assignment. Well, later in his duties, they made his duties appear to be normal Navy duties, but he always had special things to do. And one of the things, they had him up at a, at a school for people running, uh, I guess, subchases or frigates or some kind of boat. And he was the commander on this cruise. And in the process, their sound machines located a submarine. And they broadcast it. And another ship came over, and a blimp came over. And in the process, they dropped cans, and he is sure they sank the submarine because they saw bubbles and stuff, which sometimes are fake, but sometimes. But he is sure because after that, all the sounds stopped and everything else. There was a blimp overhead, and the blimp had reported that the sub was sunk. But the other ship didn't. It may have been a little bit of pride or something because the other ship never did latch onto it, but Hubbard's ship did and, and sank it. Well, there's been a the fact that a submarine was sunk so close to the U.S. shore was kept as a secret. That's what became secret. Okay. And then they transferred Hubbard down to San Diego or someplace from that school. Yeah, he had a very, very interesting military career. But was he as, as highly decorated as, as we hear, as, as we in the church hear that he was? The thing was, they didn't realize how highly decorated. Uh, they had all the notes, but they hadn't, they hadn't figured they were decorations. I'm the one that worked that out. I said, now, wait a minute, this award means this, and this award means that. And some were just listed as a star for this. Well, a star is your second medal. You got a, if you're a Legion of Merit, you have a star. It means you've got two Legion of Merit. He had combat stars for the South Pacific. Well, what it was is they said he had a South Pacific ribbon, which everybody that went there would have. Mm -hmm. But then when the combat stars are added, it 
doubles and triples the ribbon, but they didn't, they didn't realize the relationship from that. And I, I had to, because I had the same thing and I knew what it was. They had all these records, but no one had uh, interpreted them properly. And mm -hmm. I went all through the bunch of them and explained what they were, and then we started the paperwork to try to get originals and all that. And I found forged papers. <laughs> he had two, enter, when, he, when he entered the Navy, anybody coming in the Navy, you have to take physical. Mm -hmm. So he went in for his physical, and uh, everything was all right. And I was looking at records one day, and I see these two records of his physical. And of course, I'm dealing, everything I had was, was a Xerox copy. I had no originals, I had Xerox copies. So uh, I forgot what it was. Something about one of the Xerox copies looked a little bit different from the other one. So I went back and found the other one. I put them on a transparent table, mm -hmm. and then I overlapped them. And by God, although they looked to be identical, they weren't which means somebody had forged his basic records. Well, that is done, the process called sheep dipping, is done for very deep intelligence purposes. And so I was able from that time on to see that some of these other things were not exactly right and that there were two records and were two jobs with uh, one as a cover job and one as a real job and so on. Interesting. For, uh, really, I wish I could have had more time to, because I still think there are a lot of his records that, that the church hasn't recognized. They, they haven't got the people that understand them. Hmm. You're listening to Black Op Radio. This is from the, uh, the review board. The, uh, Colonel Reich wrote a very indignant letter about uh, Fletcher Prouty. And, uh, oh, Robert. Robert Reich. Yeah. And... Uh, Robert Wright wrote very strong letters about uh, Fletcher Prouty. But the most important thing I think we have to the the, the coincidentally two pieces two people came across from the Pentagon to the review board to help out with them to help out with uh, their research into the military angle the military intelligence angle and uh, the two people they they sent were Tim Ray and Chris Barger. So, they're from the Pentagon. And uh, I, 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 give, I give you the... Uh, I've, I've got Tim Ray's resume here. I've got that. Yeah, work experience. County Director for UK, Canada and Ireland. Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defence for International Security Affairs, Pentagon, Washington, DC. So, that's all very well. This guy comes across, and the first his first task seems to be he doesn't have a, a neutral attitude about uh, Colonel Jones or Prouty. The intent seems to be to to make sure they're discredited. That's the intent for both of them. You can see that in the in the prelim stuff they do, all the the memos they make, everything. Everything is, is running in tandem. And then we get, we, we, at the end of all this, where they're busy trying to say that, you know, um, Colonel Jones is full of crap. You get, they've actually reached somebody that knows something, and that's Stephen Weiss, which we've talked about before. Yeah. And where Stephen Weiss says, you know, that uh, basically that uh, they had uh, a meeting, uh, where 
prior to the prior to this meeting they received word from Colonel Robert Jones who ordered them as the 112th in Dallas to offer full cooperation to the United States Secret Service in preparation for JFK's visit to Dallas. So all those people that trash Jones are not reading the right stuff. Mm. They're not reading the right stuff. The second part of uh, Colonel Jones is the people that say, well, you should disregard him because he wasn't an operations officer. Well, excuse me. When Special Agent Benavides of the Secret Service phones in on the 30th of December, I think, to, on the 3rd of December, sorry, to, to look for Jones, he phones the operational office. He's looking for Jones about the Heidel card. That's, where, that's what he's trying to do. He's looking for information on the Heidel card. He should have talked to Don Stringfellow instead. Because that's this is this is the enigma but, about but, the but whole Heidel thing. The problem is, you see, there's been a whole case built up on that that Jones is not credible. He's not credible because the the, the Prouty story about uh, the Secret Service being apprised yeah. about cooperation from from Jones from the 112. Well, it is true. Here's a guy that was there at the meeting. Two, the Secret Service guy that phones into the operations office. And then all these clever clogs, if you go to the handbooks, go to the, in, the military intelligence handbooks for the 316th intelligence group and read what an intelligence officer is supposed to do. His task. He's a multitasker. He can be an operations officer if there's somebody missing with flu. If there's somebody not in for illness, these people are expected to multitask. So Jones could well have been there in the operations office. He could well have been an operations officer that day. All this crap that you get, it's just, it's just so annoying to me. The, the best bit is... Uh, but, but Barger and Ray had an agenda. Their agenda coming from the Pentagon was twofold. Destroy Prouty, destroy Jones. And they did. And I'm sorry to say I was part of it because I copied a lot of that stuff, swallowed it, hook, line and sinker, and sent it here, there and everywhere. I think I sent it to Larry Hancock and he wrote a whole thing about it. You know, it's, uh, it annoys me though when I think about it. I'm so gullible really does annoy me. What, what I found this minute, uh, uh, absolutely astonishing was when Jones testifies for the ACCA, which again isn't online, although Alan put a copy of it on the ARC website but of course it has been so badly tagged um, that uh, it won't be seen in uh, anywhere so um, I put it on and I realized that it wasn't anywhere and I was like I'm really not really surprised about this because in that particular interview he says he's being called by Don Stringfellow of the DPD who gives him the name Heidel and of course Stringfellow doesn't play any part whatsoever with Oswald this that and the other 
But we know that he's connected to military intel. Then there's a document that he said that, that is being sent. And I've got trouble reading when it was sent. But Jones says that he got contacted by Stringfellow between 1 and 2 o'clock. Now Oswald got arrested at 10 to 2. Because right? the assassination is at half 12. Apparently he goes to the rooming house, then he goes to whatever, to the Texas Theater, etc, etc. But by the time he's arrested, it's 10 to 2. Now I'm thinking, that's really quick mm. to get that ID, that's that really Heidel cool. name forward. Because on top of that, he wasn't part of the arrest team. No one of the arrest team mutters, utters a word about the Heidel ID. But yet Don Stringfellow manages to call at that time and give this information through to Jones, who then passes it on to the FBI, who makes two reports, one from headquarters and one from local office, about the Heidel ID. That's how the Heidel ID is actually brought into play that day, there and then. There's no other person who can do that except that. Stringfellow. Um, I'm at a total loss how this is possible. Mm. Other than that, it's bollocks. <laughs> you hear me, Larry? So there we go. You know, I, you know, there, obviously there, there are other things I was looking at. And... You're listening to Black Op Radio.